Well, welcome. Can I have my welcome to Naomi's? My name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christchurch. And while I hope someday soon we'll be able to gather physically again, I'll be able to talk to you in person and meet you, we're grateful that you're taking the time to tune in in your own home um, to uh, be with us here today. And technology gives us that great opportunity. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do three things now. The first one is uh, to get a Bible open at Mark's Gospel or switched on your phone. It will be much easier for you to follow today if you do that. Secondly, because we're doing something different today, there is a handout, a document, a structure for you to follow what we're going to do. Because basically today we're going to try and do a whole book of the Bible in one talk. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. And the link for that should be just below me here, or maybe someone kind will put it into the chat uh, here. Just click on that and you should be able to download that and follow along where we're going. Maybe even take notes if you want to. And the third thing uh, I want to say is you might have kids running around who need something, giving them to entertain them. You might want to do that at this moment. While you're sorting any of those things out, let me explain to you what we're doing. Since January, which feels like a world away, uh, we as a church have been looking through this biography of Jesus by a guy called Mark, Mark's Gospel. And we've called the series Recaptivated because we decided to do that as a church so that we could see again how brilliant Jesus is, be recaptivated by him and his beauty and his glory. But I hope if you've been tuning in and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you've begun to see why we find him so captivating and so uh, we just think he's the best person who ever lived and I hope that's become clear why at least we think that. We got to the last bit of Mark's Gospel last week and you can see all the previous sermons on our YouTube channel here but today I'm going to attempt something perhaps never attempted uh, at Christchurch before. I'm going to try and do the whole of Mark's Gospel in one talk. So the handout will help you. I want to say, uh, before we start, I'm going to pray in a minute, but before we start, there's a great little book called The Mark Experiment by Andrew Page. That's really helped me here. And it teaches you how to learn all of Mark's gospel off by heart. And you might think you'd never be able to do that, but The Mark Experiment will help you do it. And then you can be studying the Bible even when you can't get hold of a Bible or a phone, like when you're in the shower or in space or something. So, uh... The Mark Experiment, great little resource there. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for Mark's Gospel and we thank you for all the ways it has spoken to us of how amazing Jesus is and we pray you'll help us as we do this big task of looking at the whole book in one talk today. Please will you speak to us and help us see Jesus more clearly. We pray it in his name. Amen. The title for this talk is BuzzFeed Jesus. Let me tell you why. If you are an intellectual type, if you love thinking and ideas, you love really chewing into meaty things, you perhaps read regularly the New Statesman or The Economist or um, on the other political side, The Daily Telegraph, you will probably really enjoy John's Gospel. If you're like me and you love scrolling through Twitter and reading short articles and doing quizzes like this one or reading articles like this one on BuzzFeed, 10 Reasons Your Cat Might Be a Wizard, then Mark's Gospel is for you. It is full of immediately, at once, straight away. It goes bam, 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 super quick. 
and it's full of scandal and intrigue. And Mark is the master of putting one thing beside another thing in order to make his point. And that's what we're going to see as we go through. So let's start where we started in our reading today in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus is announced by John the Baptist before he comes. And John, uh, uh, before he comes, Mark quotes the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and these are prophecies that were given that the ruler of everything would be preceded by someone preparing the way for him. And then John the Baptist appears. But John the Baptist says, listen, I can, you know, help tell you to repent of your sins, tell you to be different. But there's someone coming who is far greater than me. And that's the introduction to the book. The ruler of everything is on his way, John's been sent to prepare the way for him. And that takes us into section one of Mark's gospel, which we call the message. Jesus appears onto the scene. And as he appears, he is baptized by John in the River Jordan. When he's baptized, um, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. And as he does that, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove also comes to rest on Jesus. And the picture there is that this ruler that John's been preparing the way for is God's son, is God himself. And we see the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit all saying what Jesus is bringing is from us. The story then unfolds because the ruler is God's son. We discover Jesus uh, this son of God, this ruler sent from God, has authority over, well, he has authority over basically everything. He goes into the desert and is tempted by Satan, but doesn't give in. So he has authority over Satan, authority over the, all the source of evil in the world to resist him. He just says to the disciples, the first people he meets, come and follow me, and they drop their nets and follow him. He has authority over people. But it's more than that. A man tortured by an evil spirit comes to Jesus. And Jesus just says, come out of him and he goes. Well, this is a heartening message, isn't it? God's come to earth and he has absolute authority over evil. Then he comes across a, a mother and the mother-in-law of his friend who is ill. And very simply, he just touches her. And she gets better. Immediately she gets better. And so people start crowding round him. People who are sick. People who are demon possessed. Saying use your authority to help me. But Jesus says the thing I'm going to do is get away from all these people who want healing and curing of their demons. Because I want to talk to people about the message. The thing that I've come to do is to tell them the truth. So the, the ruler is God's son. He has authority over Satan, over people, over evil, over sickness. But that authority comes to us through his words. Well, people with authority can be pretty scary, can't they? We have learned a lot about that over the last few weeks as we've seen videos of police from around the world most of whom I'm sure are very good people, but rogue policemen using their authority to do terrible things. People who have authority, who have power over you, they can be frightening. 
So what is Jesus going to use this limitless authority for as God's son, the ruler of everything? Well, someone with a skin disease, someone had a disease that made them separate from God and from everyone else, came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus just says, be clean. Someone comes to him and it looks like their need is to be healed, but Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Some people see who Jesus hangs out with and he hangs out with the worst people that nobody liked because they were considered to be so bad. And Jesus says, I've come for sinners. And then his disciples were supposed to follow all these list of laws that were written for the society they lived in and they didn't follow them. And Jesus says, I've come to remake the law so that it actually helps you. It doesn't condemn you, it doesn't hurt you, it doesn't show that you're bad, it actually helps you. So what is Jesus going to use this limitless authority for? To make people clean, to forgive sins, to welcome sinners back to God and to take laws which we know we fail to keep and change them so they help us be more the people God wants us to be. It's amazing, isn't it? The one comes with absolute authority and what he wants to do is use it for our benefit. But what then is the response? Well, have a look at chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You see, people who are invested in thinking they're the ruler of everything... And people who are invested in thinking, I don't need making clean or forgiveness of my sins or welcomed as a sinner because I'm pretty good. So people who think they rule everything and people who think they're pretty good, they hate this message and they hate Jesus. And it's still the same today. Jesus says, repent and believe the message. He says, repent, stop thinking you're really great and you're okay and admit you're not. And believe this good news that I want to make you clean and forgive your sins. That's the message. And the question Mark is asking us is how are you responding to the message? Because perhaps for you the idea that you're dirty and need making clean. And someone else has authority over you to do that makes you hate him. But that would be crazy. Because here is the one with all the power in the world and he wants to use it. To help us. How are we doing for time? Okay, let's crack on to section two. Section two, I've called the par. Sorry that I say it in a funny way. I say that's like something in a game of golf, the par. Uh, you might say power, but let's all be on the same page. Section two is about the par. And really what we discover in this section is that Jesus' par is in his words. He tells the story of some seed being sown and some of it growing and producing fruit, and lots of it not growing, producing fruit. And his disciples say to him, what does this story mean? And he says, it's a picture, the seed is a picture of my words going out. And sometimes people listen, and amazing things happen, but quite a lot of the time, people don't listen. They ignore what I'm saying, or they're distracted from what I'm saying, and so it doesn't have any effect on them. But if you will listen, and he keeps saying, listen carefully to what you hear. If you will listen, 
then God will do amazing things in your life through this powerful word, this seed that will grow. After Jesus tells those story, tells those, uh, that story and some other stories about the power of his word, he then goes on to demonstrate the power of his words. So Jesus uses a word to calm a storm. He can control nature. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever been at sea in a storm. It's terrifying. And you can, there's nothing that will make you feel more out of control. But Jesus, his words, calm the storm. Jesus' words, he, meet, he meets this a man tortured by evil spirits who's tearing his clothes, who's harming himself, who people are terrified of. And with a word, Jesus gets rid of the evil spirits and the man's humanity is restored. Jesus' words, as you listen to them, bring back your true humanity. As people hear Jesus' words, they have faith. They see who he is and they reach out to him for help. So if you're feeling really faithless and like you can't really believe this today, let Jesus' words come into your life. Listen to them. And even at the end of it all, Jesus speaks to someone who's died and his words bring the dead to life. It's amazing. So this whole section is saying Jesus' words are powerful. If you let his words into your life, amazing things will happen. And look at the power of them over nature, over evil, to bring forth faith, over death. Trust and listen to Jesus' words, but still people miss it. People are confused, particularly people who are really familiar with Jesus, his family and his hometown. And there's probably a lesson there that those of us who are familiar with this story are at real risk of not actually listening to Jesus. This is what he says in Mark 4. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or he also says this, consider carefully what you hear. What he's saying there is, the more you listen to his words, the more effort you put into hearing and trusting his words, the more they will change you. The measure it you, you use will be measured back to you. So the question is, are you listening to Jesus' words? Today it would be quite possible to be watching this broadcast and letting the word, the sound, meet your ears, but not really be listening to Jesus and letting his words into your life. Well, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's section two, the power, are we doing for time? Great, there's four minutes in that section. Next section, the training. This section is all about how Jesus' disciples move from total muddle-headedness and stupidity about who Jesus is, right through to finally understanding that he is this ruler sent from God. It's their training. It begins, this section, with the story of two parties. Herod is the great king, and he has a brilliant party with dancing girls, and all the important people are there. But his wife has taken against John the Baptist. Remember the one who introduced Jesus? And she finds a way at Herod's party to have John the Baptist's head cut off. Really grim story. And Herod was interested in John the Baptist. He almost believed, but was pressured by others at his party to not believe. And it's a picture of basically saying, it might look cool to reject Jesus, but don't do that. Don't be foolish and reject him. If you know he's right, listen and trust him, 
even if it's not what others think. Because bad things happen if you don't. That's Herod's party. Contrast it with Jesus' party. Jesus is out on the hills. Uh, no one important is there. Lots of uh, poor, normal people gathering around to listen to him, but none of them have anything to eat. And Jesus miraculously produces a meal for them all. So the poor, the needy, the unimportant are cared for by a better king. Mark is saying, here's part of your training. Which party are you going to choose? The one that looks cool, that all the better people are at, the one people will respect you for, think, for going to, but ultimately leads to death. Or out here on the hillside, no one important, but a king who you can trust to look after you. And as Jesus does this miracle of producing meals out of nowhere for people who've come out into the wilderness to be near him, He's actually repeating a story from the first part of the Bible where God looked after his people when they were in the wilderness by miraculously producing food for them. It's Jesus saying to his disciples as part of their training and to us, you know, I'm not just some random king come from somewhere saying you should follow me. I am that God from the Old Testament walking amongst you. And the thing he then says in this section as part of his disciples training is to say, Remember we talked about people being, needing to be made clean, like the man with the skin disease? It's nothing on the outside that makes people unclean, makes people unable to approach God, separate from him. It's nothing outside people that does that. It's bad stuff that comes from their own hearts. It comes from within them and it makes them unclean and separate from God. Immediately Jesus says that, Mark puts beside it a miracle where someone who'd be considered very unclean with an unclean spirit is made well and clean simply by asking Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? Come to my party, I'll look after you because I am the God of the Old Testament. You're unclean, but if you trust me, I'll make you clean. But will they see? Will they get that, the disciples? And for a long time, we're not really sure. Jesus even does the providing food miracle again. He does it twice. And even after he's done that twice, they're rowing across a lake and Jesus says something to them and they say to each other, oh, Jesus is telling us off for having no bread. Jesus is like, seriously, guys, producing bread, not a problem for me. Have you any understanding of who I am? Will you see who he is and trust him to make you clean? Well, eventually, after much uh, toing and froing, when we get to chapter 8, 27 to 30, Peter gets there, one of the disciples. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. Through that training, he's seen that Jesus is the person sent to rule over us from God. And that slap bang in the middle of the book. And so here's a pause for an intermission. Because what Mark is saying up to here is, there is a ruler sent from God with the authority and the power to make us clean. So trust, trust his words and you'll see how he makes your life clean and ready to meet God. That's the question of this section. Will you see who Jesus is? 
And you may be watching this today and have heard other stuff about Jesus, that he's a prophet or a good teacher or just someone you can quote when you need some moral advice. And Mark's view that he walks his disciples through is that Jesus' messages that he is the king from heaven come to make us clean. The power to do that is in his words if you'll trust them. And we need to learn, the thing we need to learn to do is accept and be trained, accept who he is, the Christ. How are we doing for time? Fine! Let's crack on to section four, the cost. Here's the question then we have at the start of section four. How can the king's authority, through his words, make us clean? How can that happen? How is it like magic? You know, he just says, people who are bad and unclean and can't approach God, ta-da, clean. How is he able to do that for us? And from uh, section four, uh, in section four we discover it is through his death. There are three predictions of Jesus' death in this section, and then each one followed by some implications of his death. The first one comes immediately after Peter has said that Jesus is the Christ. And Peter can't cope with the Christ being someone who dies, so he takes Jesus aside and says, hey Jesus, that's not really the kind of Christ we're looking for, thanks. We don't want you to die for us. And Jesus tells him off. Jesus says, listen, the way I'm going to put everything right is by dying. And if you're going to trust me, that's going to be your path as well. Followers of Jesus don't get to love this life and save it. Followers of Jesus lose the life that they thought they had in order to gain eternal life. That's the implication of Jesus dying to save us. The first one. The second prediction he makes, again, he says exactly the same thing almost. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. And then there's a section where the disciples really, again, struggle to take that in. So just after Jesus says, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to die for people, the disciples then have a discussion about which one of them is the greatest. Odd thing to discuss. But they're still thinking, oh, well, if you hang around with the Messiah, you're going to look like a really cool person and people will respect you. Jesus says, listen, if I'm going to die to put people right with God and I'm the ruler of everything, you aren't going to be great. In fact, in this place where I'm in charge, the king who dies, the greatest person is the one who serves everyone else. That's the implication for me of Jesus dying. Here's another implication of Jesus dying. If Jesus is dying to put anyone right with God, which is what he says, I don't get to think I'm better than anybody else. I need to be put with right with God through Jesus and you need to be put right with God through Jesus. And there's this bit where the disciples start saying, oh, that person isn't one of us, we don't want them. And Jesus says, stop being ridiculous. If anybody is trusting me, they are fully welcomed. They're fully part of the club. It's the implication of Jesus' death. Here's another implication of Jesus' death. If Jesus' death uh, means, if, uh, if it's the only way for us and our sin, our uncleanness to be dealt with, it means that sin and uncleanness is really bad. 
And so Jesus says, if there's any part of your life causing you to do stuff that's unclean, cut it off, get rid of it. It's the implication of Jesus has to die to put us right with God. Jesus has to die to put us right with God. It has implications for marriage. Uh, he basically says, um, if, I'm, if I die to put you right with God, that means you have to have that same type of self-giving, determined love in your marriage relationships. You don't get to just end them easily. It's the implication of Jesus dying. If you're going to follow him, you love like him. There's an implication for children. Some children come to Jesus and the disciples say, no, 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 Jesus is far too important. Send, send, him, send him away. And Jesus says, no, no, children, people who look weak and insignificant, they should come to me. I welcome them. Why? Because I've died for everybody. It's implications for money. A rich person comes to Jesus and says, I want to do good things to be accepted by you. And Jesus says to him, well, then give all your money away and follow me. And the man's very depressed and goes away because he doesn't want to give up his money. And you see, the problem there is if Jesus is dying for us, you don't get to think that you're really great because you're rich or you're good. And it is implications for our life. If Jesus is the one we are captivated by and we worship and we think... The best thing he ever did was give himself up for the sake of others. Then that is the pattern we follow too. And every time we give something up that matters to us for the sake of other people, we think that's the best thing to do. Because it's the most Jesus-like thing to do. Then comes prediction three of Jesus' death. And then there's two uh, corresponding uh, pictures of how we should respond to Jesus' death, one wrong and one right. So it's like history repeats itself. Jesus predicts his death and two disciples come and say, can we please be the best disciples? I am the greatest. And Jesus says, if I'm going to live, give my life as a ransom for many, then you, or as my disciples, are not going to be regarded as the greatest. But then there's a picture of a blind man on the road who simply says to Jesus, Please have mercy on me. Please be kind to me. He doesn't elevate himself to say, I'm the greatest. He says, I just need Jesus' help. And immediately Jesus helps him. That section is about the cost. And the question that that section is asking us is this. Will you humble yourself to realise you need Jesus' death? Will you trust him? And then when that humility that means you have to trust Jesus, will that come out in your life? Will you try to do what the disciples do, which is to say, yeah, 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 Jesus is really great, but I also want to promote myself all the time. Not if you're following a king who gives himself up for others. Section four, finished. Section five is the judgment. I gave the talk to most of this section, and so it was the section that struck me most, do Mark, this time. Um, this is where, instead of unpacking what he's going to do, Jesus crushes any idea that religion based on good works will save us. <coughs> he heads into the heart of the place where people want to kill him, and goes to the temple in the Jerusalem, which was the most holy place uh, uh, in re religious place in his time 
and he tears the whole place up. Says it is a waste of time. It is not doing what God wants it to do. And there's surrounding that a picture of a fig tree which Jesus curses and then it withers. And Jesus says about the fig tree, because it had no fruit, it didn't deserve to live. And he's saying that about this false religious system based around the temple as well. It doesn't produce the fruit of people serving others that we've, we've uh, talked about comes if you trust Jesus. And so it's going to be judged. Well, the people invested in that religious system, they totally reject that view of the kingdom that sort of says you trust Jesus in humility and then you're humble yourself. They totally reject that for all sorts of reasons. And they come to him with this series of questions, which is all to do with we reject that you're the ruler that we should trust. They reject him because of politics. It's interesting. They're trying to catch him out into saying, should we submit to our foreign rulers or not? Jesus says, <clears throat> I'm not getting caught up with that. The thing that I'm interested in is that you give yourself to God. But they're too invested in politics. They come to him <clears throat> to talk about marriage. They basically say marriage is so important. Um, this sort of kingdom that you're bringing um, doesn't seem to have room for the marriage as important as we think it is. Jesus basically says, listen, when people are resurrected into my new kingdom, they won't be married. So getting married now, having a marriage now, it's much less important than you think it is. They come to him and say, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, it is quite simple. You just need to love God and love other people. That's very different to promoting your own sense of being good by following rules. And so Jesus goes on and he points the finger at the self-seeking pride of the religious leaders. He says, watch out for people like that. People who parade about in a religious way and then look for the grandest seats in the biggest buildings. Leaders who do that are not to be trusted. No, in Jesus' kingdom, he spots a weak, poor woman who doesn't have much to give going out of her way to give what she can. And he says, that's what faith looks like. That's the person who's honoured in my kingdom. But that person isn't honoured in this temple, in this home of false religion. And so Mark 13 says the destruction of that temple is to come. And we live the other side of that history we know that it did come. And Jesus opens that out to say, um, any religious system, any person who thinks they're good by themselves, instead of humbly trusting me and that changing their life, any person like that is headed for judgment. Any system like that is headed for God's judgment eventually. So watch out. And so the question section five asks us is, are you going to self-righteously ignore Jesus? If you are, you're setting yourself up for his judgment. Last section. Last section already. Uh, section six, the love. This section is all about Jesus' death and why he chooses to die. And it begins with a woman coming in and pouring oil on his feet, expensive oil on his feet, and Jesus saying... 
Because she's motivated by my death for her, it's right for her to pour out her most expensive thing for me. Saying his death's pretty important. Why is it important? Well, he goes on to say, because my body, when I die, is being given up for you, for everyone. And my blood, when I die, is being poured out to bring anyone who wants to come into a perfect relationship with God. He basically says his life is his death. The thing that he is living for is to die, to bring this new relationship with God into place by giving himself away. He makes it clear by quoting the Old Testament that no one is doing that to him, even though it's a, a, the religious leaders think they're murdering him. But it's God himself who will be striking Jesus in our place, the shepherd of the sheep. And that's the picture of what Jesus' death is going to do. He's going to die on the cross so God can strike him with the punishment we deserved. And that's the reason he came, that heart of love. And that's why he says you couldn't pour out anything too much in response to that. Well, as the king goes to the cross, he begins to look more sort of kingly in reverse. So after his jumped up trial, he does get a crown on his head, but it's a crown of thorns. He's a king. But a king who's ruling by serving and lowering himself. They put him up on the cross, executing him. And what sign do they put above him? The king of the Jews. He is doing his ruling, authoritative work of making us clean as king. As he dies on the cross and is struck by God in our place. That's how the king, through... Us trusting his words can make us clean because he is taking that for us. And so we get to the final act of Mark's Gospel, the end of section 6, where the king is abandoned by his friends. He goes lower. He's crowned with this crown of thorns. He's lowering himself more. And then at the final moment of his death, he says to God, you have forsaken me. He takes all of our uncleanness, everything that makes us separated from God, and he takes it and he says to God, his father, you have separated yourself from me. Do you see the king is ruling from there, doing his work of making people clean by serving us. And so we come to the best Mark sandwich of the book. Mark's full of sandwiches, putting this thing beside this thing beside this thing to really make a point. Well, at Jesus' death, we get a brilliant Mark sandwich. One, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Next, beside it, next verse. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's right over at the other side of Jerusalem. At the moment Jesus dies, the, temp the curtain, which was a sign in the temple that people were separate from God, was ripped. Third thing, the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. 
the centurion who'd just overseen the execution of the Son of God becomes a believer. He believes the thing that Mark set out to convince us to believe at the start of the book. He's the first quote-unquote Christian, the one who just murdered Jesus. That's what Jesus' death achieves. He dies, the curtain is torn and the way is open to God, and to demonstrate that, this centurion walks right through, trusting Jesus' words, he's made clean because Jesus has died in his place. Mark gives a very quick conclusion of the Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. We talked about this last week. And he basically says this to the people, you're going to see Jesus just as he told you. And Mark's view is this. Jesus has said lots of stuff in this book. He said you should repent and believe the gospel. He has said you should trust his words. He said you should realise who he is and put your whole trust in him. He said he's going to die and that means we humble ourselves to service too. He said fake religion that says you follow rules and you become a, get a better person is all going to be judged. And he has said he will die in your place to be forsaken for you. Mark says at the end of his book, his resurrection shows all his words were true. So what are you going to do? Buzzfeed Jesus, isn't it? It's just like that. We're there. I hope you can see why we've called this series Recaptivated. Because looking at that unfolding story of Jesus and Mark, why would you not trust him? Why would you not give your life over to his care? Why would you not let him take your uncleanness in your place? Why would you not accept everything is true just as he's told you? He's captivating. As we've walked with him through this gospel, he's captivated us again. And as we finish this journey in a strange setup, who knows what the future holds for us at this strange moment in our history? I want to say to you, there is a king, a ruler who came to earth, who used his authority to make you clean by dying. For you. Won't you trust him? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for Mark's gospel. Thank you for all that we've seen about Jesus in it. Lord, please awaken our hearts to be captivated by him, we pray. Thank you so much for this um, brilliant book of the Bible that you've given us. Please help us see Jesus in his name. Amen.